in my entire time of medical school, nobody ever slapped my hands for getting a serum zinc level. It never happened. Yeah, but you gotta remember, Gregory, you were in medical school when penicillin just came out. We hate doing malpractice because we don't know what a dead child's worth in Mississippi or in Chicago. He says, if we, if we insure a boatload of shoes coming from China, we know what it's worth. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we ought to have a fanfare. We ought to have a band. We ought to have streamers. We are today for the May issue of Risk Management Monthly starting our 11th season on the air. Can you believe that, Rick? 11 this is years? This is amazing what we have done with uh, two months worth of content. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what? The other thing is we're not ashamed of it and it doesn't bother us a bit. So, uh, as celebration of starting our 11th season. And for those of you who have been around a long time, we are going to, uh, this is one of the most jam packed issues we've ever had today. You get your money's worth. We're not talking about the last 10 years, but today you get your money's worth. Now, we've got some breaking news, Rick, and we ought to hit this. Uh, as everyone out there knows, uh, uh, Lisa Hoffman um, had an article in Emergency Medicine, which had to do with Peter Rosen and the fact that he got censured by ASEP. For anyone out there who is unfamiliar with the ASEP uh, ethics program, you can send questionable testimony into the F ethics committee at, uh, at ASEP. They then take their findings, pass them on to the board, and the board has multiple things they can do. They can turn it down, send it back. They can issue a private discussion. They can send a private letter, or they can do public censure. Uh, there is one step above that that has only happened to two people since the college started, and that's actually kicking them out of the college. Now, two people that's happened to. Uh, I believe that in the last uh, 15 years, or since uh, I left the board, I think we have censured 12 people. One of them is Dr. Peter Rosen. He's the most recent one censured, and that was for egregious testimony. He stated that what happened to a emergency physician in the state of Georgia constituted gross negligence. Do you know how bad things have to be before it's gross negligence, Rick? Well, this is one of the states where they uh, up the ante in terms of the level of um, nastiness that you have to be convicted of to uh, lose a malpractice suit. This is probably a, a growing trend. Uh, yes. I think Texas did the same thing. Others have done it as well. I'm surprised that the lawyers have not gotten absolutely crazy over this. And listen, there is one other thing that they can do other than uh, disbar you from the college. There, There is the plug, public flogging option, which is also uh, one of the things that they haven't done that in in a few years i must say 200 200 years was our <laughs> nope. last public nope. flogging uh but but it's still an option you're right we haven't turned that down now let me just say this i i want no more phone calls about this issue i've had 25 phone calls about the peter rosen thing 
Did I per, was I personally involved? A number one, I had nothing to do with this. I was consulted early on. I spoke to many members in the state of Georgia. Uh, and you know, this is the state of Georgia. This isn't <clears throat> Massachusetts. In 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 uh, Massachusetts, they would I don't know uh, stop you from getting your subscription to the New York Review of Books or something. In Georgia, those are good old boys. They'll shoot you. They were that mad about this case. I personally had nothing to do with this. I think it was the correct action for the college to take for many reasons. It doesn't matter what your name is, how many textbooks you're in, or your name is on so many textbooks. Um, Egregious testimony is egregious testimony, but I am stating here, I don't want any letters, I don't want any phone calls, I don't want any emails indicating that I was part of a plot to get Peter Rosen. Peter did it all by himself. I was not involved in this. Thanks. Well, you know, one of the things that I did see is that um, in this process, um, I think that Peter basically said he was not allowed to testify in his behalf. I, I don't want to misstate this thing, but uh, do you know that to be the case, Gregory? I know he said that, or at least he implied that in the Lisa Hoffman piece, but uh, that is not true at all. He he was present. He went with his attorney uh, to both the ethics committee and the board. And uh, whether he could speak or not speak, you know what? Bullshit's still bullshit. And, uh, you know, He's dead stuff that he deserved what he got. You know, he has a perfect option. That's to uh, quit the uh, the college. And uh, quite frankly, I don't care what he does. Gregory, Gregory, Gregory. And, uh, and remember, I'm a, an author in his book, uh, which is one of the uh, most often purchased and least often read texts in emergency medicine. So, uh, you know what, Peter? Tough shit. Go ahead. Uh, that was very uh, uh, fair and balanced, I think, uh, Gregory. Um, yeah, well, you know, Fox News has been trying to get me for years. Fair well, there's a balanced. space for you. Bill O'Reilly may be available. His his evening spot may be available coming yeah, up. Does his secretary come with it, too? I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's not a bad job, I guess, if you can get it. Hey, listen, right. Let's get started here with the real stuff, you know? Okay, please. Uh, all right. Let's uh, let's hit something current, right on the money, and something we need to look at. And for those of you who are into uh, real data and real economics, the uh, April eighth issue of the Economist had a huge section on healthcare. It was brilliantly done. It points. It gives you the current data as of. Uh, Jan 1st, 2015, as to what countries in the world spend on health care, percentage of their gross national product, total dollars spent. It was very interesting. It's very current today since we have uh, naval ships uh, floating toward Korea. The South Koreans spend about $2,000 a person on health care. They have some of the best numbers in the world. The United States this year will spend a little over 9000 The Canadians will spend about $4,500 a person. Nobody spends money like us on health care and gets less for it. 
the Korean males, South Korean males, live uh, uh, just about the longest on the planet. And they're, and they're spending not 9,000, but 2,000. And that's all been manipulated on the Big Mac index and all the things they do to kind of make these things fair. Um, you know, it, we've got a lot of problems. And to, uh, to think that uh, it's just Obamacare or repealing it or not repealing it, that isn't where the problem is. Uh, I, I recommend this article for you because it raises a lot of interesting questions. Well, I, I haven't gotten my uh, issue of The Economist uh, this week, uh, so I haven't been able to see this. I, um, and I doubt whether most of the people listening, both of you, uh, get The Economist. So uh, <laughs> you're just going to have it's good, it's good to know that it's there. This is done periodically. And I, it, the good part about this, Gregory, is that uh, when we try to cut back, on our spending, we have so we spend so much that it's kind of like there's got to be a lot of low hanging fruit. It would seem that if we're going to try to get from nine thousand dollars down to four thousand or six thousand, it'd be a lot easier for us because we have so much waste. It, it would be much harder if we had no waste. So we should be very fortunate that there's waste. So there's stuff that we can cut out to try to get get a little leaner and meaner. Yeah, well, uh, for those of you who are listening and think this doesn't have to do with Risk Management Monthly, the truth is it has everything to do with Risk Management Monthly because we're going to review some papers which talk about malpractice, fear of malpractice, what we're doing or we're not doing. But um, I have a lot of personal feelings that a problem that we can't seem to get over is we train at the 120 or 130 major medical schools of the United States, where cost-effective training is never a serious discussion. In my entire time of medical school, nobody ever slapped my hands for getting a serum zinc level. It never happened, Rick. Yeah, but you got to remember, Gregory, you were in medical school when penicillin just came out. Uh, things may be a little different now, but I honestly don't think so. <laughs> well, I, think, I mean, I, but I needed the penicillin then. I mean, I don't now, so it's okay. You know, I think that uh, you're right. I think that nobody's ever uh, criticized you for over-ordering. At least I don't think that's the case. There may be some... Um, faculty out there that do that you know maybe jerry hoffman did it when he was uh teaching in in 10 years ago but the fact of the matter is is that yeah i, I agree with you that is not considered to be one of the priorities to teach physicians how to do cost-effective care and um i don't think that you can spend any more money doing tests and the like uh now uh it's it's virtually impossible to to have people order more because there's nothing left. They've ordered it's not it all. nothing left to order, exactly. If we threw $20 bills out the back of the ambulance door going down the road, we couldn't waste more money. Uh, let me, let's get back to what's happening, though. Another current thing I want to hit is uh, a case which I think moves us again in the right direction Um uh, as we're going to talk about the amount of malpractice in the country. But in a recent case, Edwards v. Metropolitan Hospital, this is a Michigan Court of Appeals case, they said this, 
a medical malpractice case will not survive without a qualifying expert to testify that a defendant's breach of the standard was the cause of the damages. No, we always talk on this show of duty, breach, proximate cause, harm done, that sort of thing. But the the court again reaffirmed in Michigan, you can't have a wishy-washy plaintiff's expert who's not sure whether it actually caused the damage. There's got to be somebody who's aware of the standard, knows what was done or not done, and can state that that is what caused the death in this particular case. This is actually an important case for us here in Michigan because they were bringing in a series of experts, you know, a pathologist who say, well, you know, maybe that's why he died. And an emergency doc who said, I don't know whether it actually caused the death, but the action was below the standard. You can't do that stuff anymore. There's got to be a clear tie between that deviation and that death expressed by an expert in that field. Um, This is good news for us. Well, you know, that may be good news for you, but it may not be such good news for the uh, injured party because you, you know, and I know that it's not often able to be definitively said that this was the uh, result, this is the cause, those kinds of things. And that's what a trial is all about, is trying to kind of weigh both sides of the case. Well, but there needs to be some uh, scientific uh, uh, collaboration here as to what actually causes things to happen. Um, All I can say is this is another good stake in the ground for us here in Michigan, that there can't be a, a parade of, of experts in various fields uh, unsure as to actually whether it caused the death. Okay. Um, All right. uh, Greg, do you want to do this uh, first uh, article yeah, that we I, have I w- here? Yeah, I will. Um, and, and just to let everybody know, this is we start our 11th year, uh, Rick being the anal compulsive that he is, has never failed to send me an outline uh, because he wants to make sure, by God, that we're going to have papers to comment on. Uh, he is evidence-based. I am eminence-based. Yes, absolutely. That, it's absolutely true. And you know what? Uh, l- let me, let, let me uh, uh, give Rick his due here and, and read the case or read the story. Uh, And this has to do with a Washington Post article, which appeared uh, not very long ago, March 12th. And it says, should hospitals and doctors apologize for mistakes? Now, as you know, Rick, they they, they talk about this candor program, uh, which was really started by my next door neighbor here in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, uh, Rick Boothman. And uh, Rick is the attorney at the University of Michigan. They adopted a program in 2001 where they were going to go right in, tell patients if something had been done wrong, and take care of it on the spot. And uh, they claim that they've cut their litigation costs greater than 50%. Uh, you got to be a little careful about this. <clears throat> Some states, and I think there's at least 13 or 14 states, which allow a doctor patient conversation where a doctor admits that there may have been harm done by their actions, 
they, they allow those conversations to be presented at court. Other states have what they call is, uh, is an I'm sorry rule, which says that uh, during the course of the treatment, a physician's stating that he's sorry is not admissible as some sort of evidence in a malpractice trial. So it is still state dependent. But I think that uh, uh, the point of this article is that going after uh, the truth, getting it to the patient and trying to resolve the issue early on may actually be a cost-effective methodology. Well, you know, more specifically, this uh, article talks about the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality coming up with this program called CANDOR, which relates to communication and optimal resolution. And yes, they base it on what was done uh, by Rick Boothman. And we talked about that multiple times, and it's, it was done a long time ago. This thing about the University of Michigan and and, and its uh, uh, reduction in suits, it it's, uh, back goes back to 2001. So this has been going on a long time. This p- article notes that 14 hospitals around the country are now trying this CANDOR program. And um, the bos- basic components of it are prompt investigation, advising patients of the error, and apology and f- appropriate compensation. And that's exactly what uh, he did uh, 18 years ago, 17 years ago. However, 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 fear of disclosure uh, uh, would, that that would prompt a lawsuit is in the minds of uh, the, the clinicians. A study of primary care physicians noted that 77% would not fully disclose uh, a delayed diagnosis of breast cancer and that lawyers are likely to be against disclosure and insurance companies as well. And we've talked about that. There is this dichotomy here where the hospitals and the AMA and the hospital association are all saying disclosure is good. That's like apple pie and motherhood. But on yeah. the other other side of the equation, uh, the lawyers saying, hey, wait, our, our system does not really allow for this to occur. This is an adversarial system, and uh, saying you're sorry doesn't work well in an adversarial uh, system. Uh, motherhood and apple pie are good unless the apple pie has worms and mother has gonorrhea. So I think that the uh, the real question here is not just saying you're sorry. It's who says it and how they say it. And Rick Boothman will tell you that. You don't have every second-year resident in, in thoracic surgery run in and make those comments. And can you imagine in the emergency department where the issue is often still in doubt, having someone run in and say, oh, God, I'm sorry, I killed grandma. Well, you know, at a certain point in time, there needs to be some, some rules uh, put on this so that everybody and their uncle is not telling a different story to the patient. And I think Rick's real contribution here is they set up a system to handle this uh, so that they had the best people doing the most reasonable job with the patients. And that's still the best way to go. Yeah, I think most hospitals now have people who are particularly good at um, interacting with patients and their families uh, who are empathetic and who can um, transfer this I'm sorry message 
most effectively. And yes, you're right. This is not every Tom, Dick and Harry can do this as we've discussed oh, uh, no. in, the, in the past. Yeah. There are certain people who give what we call the half apology and the half apology is worse than no apology at all. Cause it just inflames people. Let's move on, Gregory. And, uh, there's, we've got a paper looking at uh, testicular torsion cases. This is a strange paper in that between 1985 and 2015, these guys went through the Nexus, LexisNexis database, which is this legal database, which is used to review cases and find data that you're going to use when you're uh, defending or prosecuting your case. Uh, these cases were all at what they call at the state level. They were at the appeals level. And... Uh, they basically had some common threads that I think we should talk about. First of all, by way of background, they point out that torsion is the fourth, as it is, is in the top four of pediatric litigation. Um, I, I, I wish they had said what the other three were, but they didn't. Um, the estimates of testicular loss during a torsion is somewhere between 32 and 42 percent is what they basically say. So not uh, every case results in a, in a, a um loss of a testicle, but it, but, uh, it is basically one of the issues in these cases reported testicular salvage by way of background is uh, in the neighborhood of 85 to 97%. If you get it within six hours. So that's kind of like the background, the clock's running in these cases. And, um, what they also found in these cases is that as you may anticipate, 98% of the cases were for misdiagnosis. Uh, ER docs were sued the most of all the doctors, a third of the cases related to ER doctors. Surprisingly, hospitals were sued in 20 of the thir- of the 53 cases. What could what what a hospital could do wrong in these cases is like uh it's it's hard to hard to conceive of, but yeah, they but were Greg, they Greg, were sued. Greg, 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 Greg. What they do is they tag if you're a hospital employee They'd sue okay, the hospital okay. as as the as the respondent. Yeah, I'm just, the, yeah. You you understand the problem here, Rick? That if you can sue somebody, they will sue somebody. So I take that with a great assault. Yeah, the hospital's involved. Okay, it's 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 more of a technical legal way to get it more money than it is the negligence of the hospital. You know, I think that uh, my being a um, contract position for my entire career uh, makes me focus on why would a hospital be named when a contracting doctor is is the uh, culprit. But you're right. If you're an employee, it's a different story, and they all well, they can drag in the hospital. The average number of people sued in these cases is about one and a half, uh, and the kids that are. Uh, involved in these cases are generally older than you would anticipate. The average age of the patients was 15 and a half, but the range was between two and 47, two and 47. As far as, as far as I'm concerned, if a guy comes in with pain down there, down there, down there, there. lower, lower abdomen, and you don't look at the penis and squeeze the testicles, you haven't done a physical exam. Uh, I, I was actually in a meeting where a urologist said, this is a guy who practices for a living, said, well, if they're over 18 or 20, it's probably not uh, torsion. That's crap. Uh, the age of torsion, the last guy I diagnosed was, I think, 26. Um, 
if they have sudden onset of pain in the lower abdomen and you don't check the testicles, I have, I have no idea why you call yourself a doctor. It's so simple. It's totally cheap. You don't have to send any money off uh, to buy a test. I mean, come on, give me a break. So how many, in how many of these cases, Rick, did, did they not even examine the damn testicles? Well, we're going to get there. Um, yes, you would think that they would do that, and apparently they, they didn't. Um, but, 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 Gregory, they point out that atypical symptoms were routine. I mean, it, this is, this is, these are not textbook cases generally, although there is some culpability here, as you pointed out, in terms of not doing some stuff that is considered pretty basic. False negative ultrasounds were common. False negative ultrasounds. It's important that we acknowledge that these things, these tests are not particularly good in these cases. So if your clinical suspicion is uh, high and you've ordered an ultrasound as negative, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, take that to the bank. Um, well, got- I, I mean, you have to put things together as a group. If you've got a 12-year-old boy, if the ultrasound isn't perfectly clear and yet they have a suddenly sudden onset painful testicle, Rick, I mean, that's the kind of thing that urologists are called on and brought in on to look at those difficult cases. What I think is interesting is there really is a difference in the examination when they say they've got a tender belly. Almost everyone who has testicular torsion and complains of abdominal pain complains of pain below the pelvic brim. And that's because if you look at the the, um, anatomy Uh, a testicle descends along the gubernaculum down into the scrotum at the time of development. And that's where those nerve endings are. So it can easily be six or eight inches, the pain above where we'd usually expect a testicle to be, but it's not going to be at your gallbladder. It's, it's not going to be at your umbilicus. It's below that level on examination. In these cases, 16 of the 53, abdominal pain was the uh, only initial symptom they pointed out. And Gregory, as you had alleged, no testicular exam occurred on the first visit in 10 of the 53 cases. So that there's the whole the whole scenario here is uh, be generous in examining uh, the testicles, particularly in per- people with lower abdominal pain who happen to be men. By the way, I bet if we looked at those charts and they build at a high level, I'm sure they put down that the eyes were normal, the mouth was normal. Who the hell cares what the eyes and mouth look like on a kid who's come in with, with low abdominal pain? You know, you go a foot above and a foot below and examine it. How hard can this be? <laughs> Give me a break. Gregory, for your level four examination, as you know, you have to do uh, the uh, an examination of the eyes in all suspected torsion tor- uh, torsion cases. Uh, well, and and have looked to make sure that they they don't have a testicular torsion in their ear canal too, which uh, never made any sense to me. But we'll go we'll go on with this. Uh, by the way, uh, so is there a take-home message in this one, Rick? Oh yeah, I think I think so. Uh, first of all, uh, you have to basically 
uh, can uh, consider this. If you don't consider it, you'll never make the diagnosis. Right. Uh, it, it's part of the uh, evaluation of the abdomen. And as you said, these are actually intra-abdominal organs that have migrated out of the abdomen uh, embryologically. And so that's kind of why abdominal pain may be uh, the principal or only symptom, at least manifested early on. And that don't trust um, ultrasounds because they, they, they can be wrong. Uh, you know, there is the belief by a, a subset of people that the way you make this diagnosis is to look to you, you make a small hole and you look to see what's going on. Not, not you as the emergency physician, but that that's the way that urologists could make this diagnosis most reliably. And, and all of these other tests are really kind of tangential to the ultimate test of taking, uh, taking the eyeball onto uh, what's going on inside of the scrotum emptying, uh, you know, making a small incision in the scrotum is no big deal. It, no, it's not. And uh, I, I guess as far as I'm concerned with a with a young person who has pain in that area or particularly in the testicle, I think I think it would be unusual not to make a call to urology just to go over the situation on the phone. We don't deal with urologists that much. We don't bother them a lot. Uh, you know, in my entire career, I probably called urologists in you know, once a year, twice a year to look at cases. It's, it's not like general surgery or cardiology. Um, we don't, we don't tax them too much. All right, let's, uh, let's hit another article, a good article, Kaiser Health News dated January 4th, 2017. It's entitled leading Republicans see a costly malpractice crisis. Experts don't. What are the key points in this discussion? Well, the Republicans forever have wanted to make tort reform part of their Trump care. Um, and I can understand certain reasons, but it has nothing to do with the facts of what's happening today in malpractice. You know, they, start the, they cite the usual stuff, but the only one of importance is the mindset of physicians and defensive medicine. Because there is no questions, doctors believe it's a bigger problem than it actually is. Um, award caps have been have been tossed around for years. Some states have them, some states don't. Uh, but and lastly, uh, they've pushed for guidelines that if you do a certain number of things, and this has been tried in a variety of states. If you do the following tests or the following examinations on a patient, then you've met the standard of care. And they say that maybe this eliminates 15 or 20% of the cases. But you know what? 15 or 20% is something. But I think that people who have looked at this have stepped back and done the 30,000-foot analysis and that includes you and I, Rick, because I've been doing cases for 42 years. There's less medical legal activity today in emergency medicine than there's ever been in my entire yes, career. Yes, I know. Your your children are not eating any longer. <laughs> they're, they're not. They're, they're getting, not. They're getting saltines and, 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 and warm milk because yeah. there's no malpractice cases in Michigan anymore. Well, it, you know, the... 
we joke about this, but in preparation for this discussion today, I spoke to a few of my friends who've actually said at one of the major malpractice defense firms, they've let go 50% of their attorneys. Mm. That's uh, that's a lot. That's pretty now, impressive. Well, now they're going to have to go out and do real work or wills, trusts, and estates and stuff like that to make a living. Now, your wife's not going to like that because she'd like to she'd like to corner that business, Rick. I know that she has cornered it. She has been doing it for like thirty five years. Yeah, um, and she's good at it, right? All ladies from Pasadena are her clients. Hey, listen, you know it's not only defensive medicine. This is the mantra is defensive medicine, frivolous lawsuits, high malpractice premiums, and doctors being forced out of business. Oh my lord! Oh my lord! Beat your chest. <clears throat> but <clears throat> but the whole point of this article is the facts don't support all of this uh, chest beating at all. Um, oh, I think what it really supports is all the things that we've done. And I've been to the state legislature in Michigan. I've done all this sort of stuff. It worked. A lot of it actually worked, Rick. We now have less than half, in fact, probably this year, if you compare it against the bellwether year, which was 2003, where things went crazy, we're not even going to have 40% of the suits we had in 2003, and we got a hell of a lot more cases uh, or a lot more patients coming through ERs. So when you think about it, most of the stuff we've worked on has worked. You know, get a life, docs. Uh, the the biggest thing in your life is not the malpractice case. I know you don't want it. I know it's terrible when you get it, but but it is not this huge monster that's going to eat everybody to death. It just isn't. Well, I think it, you have to have been in practice uh, a good while to see the transition that has occurred. Uh, doctors now pay less than half of what they did in 2001. But if you were not been practicing, you know, for 15 years, you don't, you don't know that. And yes, claims are in half. Um, this has been uh, drastic changes. There yeah, are no, some no. other issues. Oh no, this, uh, this, this is absolutely for real. And I think that uh, the good news is your work is, is done. Uh, by the way, whenever anybody says how much they're paying for their malpractice, You've got to do it in some established dollar level. Um, you've got to remember from when I was a kid, the dollar is now worth about a dime in purchasing power. So we have to go back and say, uh, you know, we used to buy a plain McDonald's hamburger for 15 cents and now it's a buck. Okay, costs have gone up a little bit, but the actual amount has uh, has uh, we're actually paying less in some states. State of Texas, for example, I think the number of malpractice cases has dropped to to about 10% because they went with that gross negligence standard as part of the big package in Texas. About 10% of what it was in 2003. You know that? That's pretty yeah. good. Well, you have to look at the other side of the coin, however, that doesn't mean that there's less, any less malpractice now than there was before. It just no. means that there are less, less lawsuits. And, you know, we've talked in the past about 
inability of plaintiffs to get their day in court because the bar has been set so high that no lawyers will take the cases. Um, there is this also this issue of how much does uh, malpractice and defensive medicine cost? Um, they, the people who wrote this paper say it's in the neighborhood of 3% of our $3.2 trillion annual expenditure on health care. 3%. That's, uh, you know, it's still $100 billion, but in the big picture, 3% is not, you're not going to get it down to 0%. Yeah, you've got to remember, Rick, <clears throat> if you look at uh, Thomas Price and those people. Oh, God, I don't want to look there. I don't want to uh, look. Yeah, yeah. But what he says is it's not just the dollar. It's the thought process which that which carries over into everything doctors do. And I believe that to some extent. Sure. They do crazy crap. Uh, patients are pay the, the death rate doesn't change. It's one per person. And we do crazy crap at the end of life. If you look at the, and HHS is the people who have all this data, they'll tell you 60% of the money spent on you in your life th through them, healthcare wise, is spent in the last uh, 180 days of your life. You and know, the, the, this paper you, says that they think the cost is 3% or $100 billion. They point out that the Republicans say the cost is more like 300 hundred billion dollars and thomas price the new head of hhs uh says it could be catch this up to a quarter of all healthcare spending that's how wacky this fella is yeah well i don't think it's a quarter but i will say this we have gotten into bad habits and if this is a part of quelling the bad habits that's fine what i want to do is take this away from doctors I don't want to hear again out of anybody, well, I do it just to protect myself. First of all, it's illogical because it usually doesn't protect them. You know what protects them? You know, talking to the patients, being honest about the fact we don't know yet, re-examination. That's what protects you. But we get into, we get into bad thought patterns, and, uh, but, but malpractice is only one part of the equation. Well, Gregory, you're never going to get the uh, physicians to say, uh, I, I, uh, I'm not afraid of, of lawsuits. Until the rate of lawsuits and the risk of lawsuits is zero, we're going to hang on to this uh, uh, erroneous belief uh, for a long time. And a lot of it basically is also reinforced by our, our training, which basically says, do everything, miss nothing. Uh I want to talk about what I think to be pretty much the definitive article on this topic. It just came out March 27th. Can you believe this? Now, what are we? What day is today, Gregory? It's like the 13th or 14th of April we're doing this? Uh, and we're doing it on Good Friday, Rick. God bless you. You're going to do the stations across this afternoon? I, absolutely. I, I know the my... margin is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen. So this paper was in JAMA Internal Medicine. It came out March 27th. And it's entitled Rates and Characteristics of Paid Malpractice Claims Among U.S. Physicians by Specialty, 1992 to 2014. It, it is by far the most detailed look at, at this issue 
that I've seen, and it's certainly the most current. It's from uh, the authors are, are from Brigham and Women's Hospital. They used the National Practitioner Data Bank and assessed information of claims claims between the '92 and 2014, and they stratified them by specialty. So uh, here, there's a lot of good news here, uh, Gregory, and it does reinforce uh, the last paper that we did, but it's got it in more detail. They point out that overall, suits are down by 56%. Well, what does that mean? You know, this is all a relative term. It means that they've gone from down from 20 to 9 per 1,000 physician years, 20 to 9. Yep. Uh, it's interesting in terms of the differences in the specialties. Cardiology suits declined only 13%, while pediatric suits have declined 76%, 76%. Rick, we're one vaccination away of not needing <laughs> pediatricians at all. You, you realize <laughs> that all those diseases that you and I grew up with – treating as young doctors. When I, when I was young, we used to diagnose a bacterial meningitis, you know, every couple of weeks. In the last part of my career, clinically, I hadn't seen a bacterial meningitis in a child for three years. Think about that. Yeah, the explanation, I think, that there are, there is a big drop in these lawsuits for pediatric is that there are no sick kids anymore. Exactly. They close peds units in every hospital in the country, except in a few major kid hospitals. That's it. Yeah. And when you think about it, most kids get better. <laughs> and, and, no matter, and, and don't really screw, screw it up. up. Yeah, don't screw it up. Exactly. Up. Uh, Payouts, however, have increased by 23%. So there's this big dichotomy here. Lawsuits, uh, the claims are down by half. Payouts are increased by 23%. So you can see that uh, insurance companies, Warren Buffett is making a huge amount of money. Yes, physicians are paying less, but they are probably not paying uh, uh, proportionately less. Again, by specialty, the increased in in um, uh, in payouts range from a, a measly seventeen thousand dollars for general practitioners to catch this one hundred fourteen thousand dollars for gastroenterologists and almost one hundred forty thousand dollars for pathologists. Their yep. payouts have gone up remarkably high. But it's different disease entities yeah. they get sued for, Rick. They uh, a pathologist is is uh, sued for a misdiagnosis of a disease that kills you. That's that's it. That's what they get sued for. You know, I've heard people say, "Well, you know, there are less uh, lawsuits and there are and the claims are there are less paid claims. However, the claims are that are paid are going up higher and higher and higher, and the multi-million dollar claims are, are um, an issue. This paper says that's really not the case. Nope. Uh, of all of the claims, 7.6% exceeded $1 million uh, during the time period when this study first began, 1992 to 1996, and yep. now it's 8%. Uh, exceed uh, these uh, $1 million limit. Uh, one of the interesting things were that a third of the claims involved patients who died, but in emergency medicine, it is substantially higher. And I want to get to some of the uh, specifics of emergency medicine. Um, 
The number of physicians with at least one paid claim during this period was 8,007, and the total paid claims were 11,000. So some doctors had to pay a, a couple of times. The rate of paid claims has decreased in emergency medicine by 46% over this period that they're talking about here. Um, the uh, Regarding payouts, they increased 26%. So they're in line with the whole trend of all the specialties of about a 23% increase. And um, regarding the characteristics of the paid claims, minor physical injury or emotional problems, loss of consortium was 8%. Significant physical injury, uh, 28%. Major physical injury, 14%. So, I've, uh, And um, what else have we got here? Oh, here we go. Death. Isn't that interesting? Half the claims involve death. Diagnosis uh, problems. But at least with the death claims, you don't have continuing medical costs. So there are pluses and minuses here, Rick. Yeah, don't maim them. Kill them. Kill them. Yeah. That's right. Of course, diagnosis uh, and errors that are associated with were at the top of the list, about two-thirds of the cases. And um, medication or treatment-related problems were a th uh, about a third of the cases. So I don't think that you're going to find any uh, papers that are more detailed. And uh, this is a relatively easy paper to get a, your hands on if you're interested. It's in uh, JAMA Internal Medicine. Uh, and we're talking about uh, March 27th. So I would recommend it if you want to, if you're interested in this, if you're a student of these kinds of things, if you want to refute some of the uh, ongoing allegations about how terrible malpractice is, um, go, go to it. By the way, um, as as you're well aware, Rick, I am now sitting in the dungeon. In my office, they've kicked me out of the one that I had. I'm now down next to the heating plant and the electrical circuit board. So I have to be careful where I stick my finger. <laughs> I get 10,000 volts. But as part of that process, I was going through old papers, and I found one that's about 30 years old in which a doctor is talking about uh, reducing malpractice suits. And you know what? Everything he said in the paper 30 years ago is exactly true today. If you look at his summary here, is he says, show that you care. Be honest. Tell the patient the truth. Record what you actually did. Um, uh, cover basics, history and physical, and, and uh, be cautious uh, and make sure that the discharge covers not the disease you think they have, but for the bad one they could have. You know what? That, that paper could be published today, and it's absolutely the same. Uh, things are good. Things don't change much in, uh, in our world. Um, can, I, can I give you a case? Yes, you can. All right. The appellate court rules on quality control documents. This is from the state of Illinois. And this is a, this came down, I think about, about four months ago, three months ago. And let me tell you the problem. Uh, Illinois is not a kind state generally to doctors or malpractice because of Cook County. It's, uh, it's the county from hell 
if you review all these things, and they tend to give away a lot of money. But a hospital had a, an event in which a patient suffered an anoxic brain injury following surgery. The family uh, said there must be something wrong. So they directed the, the hospital uh, chief, directed the Quality Assurance Committee to look specifically at this case. And he says, you know, we've looked at this. We don't have anything wrong. Their attorney, the family's attorney, sued and said, you've got to uh, present to us, show us the Quality Assurance Committee's work. Now, you and I know that most in most states, quality assurance activity is protected. It's not available to the plaintiff. Plaintiff made an interesting argument. He said, you looked not just at the quality across the hospital, you looked at this specific case. We want to know what you found. We don't want the quality assurance data. We want to know what you found on this case. And uh, so this had to go all the way to the Illinois Appellate Court. Uh, and uh, fortunately, the, uh, the uh, Illinois Appellate Court said, this is a part of the quality assurance program. We know that there's a specific case involved, but if we violate the quality assurance documents, no doctor, no hospital uh, will will do a good job looking at these things, and they denied plaintiff access to that information. Uh, so, so at least we have a decision now that says, even on a specific case, you cannot get at the quality assurance materials. And uh, the day that you the day that you can have that, you can get anything you want out of quality assurance is the day that quality assurance stops being effective. Well, you know, I think that it probably is not effective in the majority of cases. Um, I think that uh, there's a tendency of physicians to kind of watch their brother's back. You don't want to be accused. Uh, uh, you don't want to be on the other side of uh, the uh, quality assurance committee's cases either. So I think that uh, it takes a fair amount for a hospital medical staff to um, go against a doctor. Uh, it, it has to be pretty egregious, I think, um, because it's like the fox is watching the chicken coop to a certain extent. There is no um, dispassionate third party involved here. So um, I think quality assurance would be a, uh, is often not really what it's supposed to be. I'm a little cynical about it, obviously. Yes. But I think it's based on my own <clears throat> personal experience uh, in these situations. But in any case... You obviously had to sit on the Quality Assurance Committee at the yeah, hospital at yes, some yes, period of yes, time. Yes, I did. For yes. about 20 years. Yes, and, we uh, all did. Yes, yeah. it was always a problem. And whenever you brought something up, you were not a popular guy. No, uh, exactly. Let me, let me give you a case from uh, Medical Malpractice Insights that is produced by a friend of ours. And uh, this, had to do, this had to do with if I was making a case one case to present to medical students and residents as to how you can screw the whole damn thing up. This is it. 
a two-year-old presents to the emergency department shortly after noon, uh, 12 noon, with a fever, pain, and a history of vomiting for a week after an ear infection that was treated with antibiotics. The triage nurse notes describes the child as lethargic, eyes closed, and no response to the taking of a rectal temperature of 104. The nurse also notes she thinks the neck is stiff. Now, Rick, let's assume you've been in medicine for eight minutes, maybe nine minutes. Is there anything else we need here? Not really, okay? No, Medi- uh, it'd be interesting to know when this when this case uh, came about. Well, this is... Uh, I think this is relatively recent. Anyway, the nurse uh, uh, triaged the child as a level two. What I want to know is what do you have to do to be considered the highest level in their triage category? If this is a two, help me. Here's the worst part. The ER doc uh, sees the child a couple of hours later. The doc immediately calls a pediatrician who is going to come in and see the child and orders a CT scan. The ER doc has no further contact uh, with the child. All he did was call in the pediatrician. The CT, the, the pediatrician said, we've got to have a CT before I do an LP, which is absolutely wrong. And he wouldn't start an antibiotic Uh, until that's back. Now, here's the worst part. The pediatrician writes for the antibiotic and for the admission of the child. The nurse says they don't do uh, 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 antibiotics uh, until the child is admitted. So now the child's admitted. What happens between admission and showing up in a bed upstairs, Rick? Nothing. Nothing. Okay, it's like where the cabs go in New York when it rains. There's a place where they all go and hide till the rain stops. Gregory, it sounds like this case sounds like you made it up. No, Uh, it's it's everything that they did seemed to be wrong. It's just hard to conceive of that this would be a a case that is um, recent. Yeah, they he claims it's recent, and uh, he says. That the ER doc, of course, says, well, if the pediatrician's coming in, I don't have to do anything. Pediatrician says, well, I wrote for uh, an antibiotic. I assumed it would be done in the ER. I, I think the real, re- the real thing here is, uh, you know what? If it has to be done in the ER, just do it. I have no idea why you would call in a pediatrician on this case. I, I have no idea. What would they do? Well, this is a pretty bad case. Oh, my uh, this, God. This would be in the egregious category. Yeah. And when the nurse decides that this is triaged at a level two and she writes down on the chart, lethargic and stiff neck, I, I just don't know how it can get worse than that and, and what you're going to have to do. This, by the way, was a $10 million decision. And I, I think I'd have doubled that for punitive damages for being idiots in this particular case. All right, Gregory, now that you gave us that uh, marginally uh, meritorious case, uh, let's move on. 
Let me give you a great case that uh, you have to go through a lot of literature to to find uh, cases. And this happens to be uh, initially was listed uh, as a site case, but it's not a site case. This has to do with all doctors who give out prescriptions. And, and let me just give you this site on this. It's Jane Doe versus Mamun Dabaj, uh, MD, U.S. District of Michigan. It's a federal case. It's the federal district in Michigan. And it has to do <clears throat> with a concomitant civil action brought against uh, after a uh, criminal case. The criminal was this psychiatrist, Dr. Dabaj, who was passing out drugs in exchange for sex. He is visited by a um, pimp who has decided he could use drugs in the uh, trafficking of young women. So what he did was the, he bought drugs from the psychiatrist, Adderall mostly, which the uh, pimp was giving to 14 and 15 year old girls um, and he was controlling him that way. In fact, uh, all of this was shown in federal court, uh, including the doctor meeting this pimp at various restaurants, giving him bags of drugs, that sort of thing. <clears throat> now, here's an interesting thing most people don't know. There is a federal law, 18 U.S.C. 1595 which allows victims to sue those who knowingly financially benefited from participating in human trafficking. So this one gal, Jane Doe, sued this doctor, who's now been convicted, by the way, uh, and lost his license, and is supposedly on his way to prison. Things aren't settled yet, so he's still out on bond which was probably arranged by the drug traffickers. In any event, um, Jane Doe sues him for all the harm done to her life. Um, and it, it, the amount of money that he came up with, it was $500,000, which will never be collected because Dr. Dabu has taken off uh, back to out of the country, that sort of thing. So he's not going to go to prison for the criminal act. Uh, but they did seize all of his properties. So they're now involved in trying to get this young woman some, some money from what he did to her. The, when I spoke to the woman involved in doing the prosecution in this case, uh, and her name is Keisha Cheney. She's a lawyer here in southeastern Michigan. And she pointed out that whether he was a psychiatrist or an emergency doc or family practitioner made no difference. Uh, he was aware that medications he was selling to someone were used in a criminal activity. So uh, what she wished me to point out to my colleagues in emergency medicine was, if you are repeatedly giving drugs, ask some questions. Um, obviously in this case, they didn't have any problem catching this guy, but what she said was they're going to be more aggressive about going after doctors. And what do you, th what case do you think she referenced to me on the phone? 
What about Chuck, the uh, the uh, pharmacy case that we've talked about ad nauseum in the past? Chuck What's the name Valley. of it? Chuck, Chuck Valley. She said that she immediately brought that up and said, you know, boys and girls, you can be held responsible for other people's criminal activity if you're the supplier of medications and you knew or should have known that illegal activity was going on. I mean, I think that's, I, I, I think this is another one of those cases that says, you know what, guys, uh, ask some real questions here. Th this case is not a super good case because they caught this character doing a lot of things. And by the way, he hasn't spent a, a day in jail yet because uh, he's uh, running somewhere. Well, you know, it, it, it is very analogous to the, uh, to the case that we went through ad nauseum. Yes. A and um, I also thought that that was, uh, I think it was a Virginia case or somewhere, but I thought that some of it had to do with um, not being federal, but rather state laws that were in, involved um, in that Tug Valley situation. But in any case, you're basically saying that there is a federal statute that uh, says that if you give out drugs in relationship to uh, the committing of crime, that you become complicit in that uh, criminally and obviously civilly, uh, as, as the Tug Valley thing was all about civil um, action. These doctor, these are addicted people who are committing crimes sued the pharmacy for giving them all of these pills that they were um, getting from this pill mill that we were talking about. Yes. All right. Next case. Uh, lumbar puncture performed while patient was on a blood thinner. Uh, and for those of you who don't believe that the newer designer drugs are just as potentially dangerous, in fact, perhaps even more dangerous than, uh, than uh, Coumadin. Uh, here, here we've got the case. Uh, the patient uh, did receive their, their lumbar puncture, and um, a female uh, who, uh, who had informed them uh, that she was on a blood thinner. Nothing, uh, no precautions were taken. Nobody tried to reverse this activity and, um, uh, no opinion was sought by either the, uh, uh, by, from a neurosurgeon or a neurologist. They tapped her and the patient over the evening complained of tingling in her feet, losing control of her urine. And by the time they, uh, looked at her in the morning, she is paraplegic. This is a $9 million case. Um, not a good thing. No, it's kind of uh, tough because um, there's always this issue of how important is it to do the lumbar puncture. And it appears that it's getting progressively less and less important to do these uh, these tests. It's kind of like it would be great to know what they were looking for. I know that the uh, the uh, booklet from which uh, you get most of these cases doesn't give you a lot of detail uh, because um, the necessity for doing lumbar punctures has gone way, way, way down. Well, Even if particularly in this case, because they, they had suspected Guillaume Barre. Uh, yeah, uh, that would certainly be a case where um, even if you uh, 
made the diagnosis. It was certainly not going to be an urgent kind of thing, I don't think. No. Yes, the, the treatment of Guillain-Barre is rather complex and involves all of this uh, giving of these um, uh, medicines that are not certainly given in the emergency department. But uh, I think that that would be a good example of a case where, in fact, you could defer uh, treatment. These newer drugs wear off relatively quickly. I mean, the fact is that some of them you give twice a day, some of them you give once a day, but once those drugs are out of your system, uh, you're a, you're back to uh, coagulating normally. So it's a matter of when you took it last and how urgent it is to do a tap. And uh, if you are basically going to do it, you know, the next day or thereabouts, you should be okay. But clearly, I would get some consultation on this. I wouldn't certainly do this on my own. And I certainly don't think that making the diagnosis of Guillain-Barre in the emergency department is essential. Yes. Well, uh, <clears throat> the court looked at it exactly that way. And $9 million later, both the emergency doc and the hospital were sued in this case. So let's do another psych case. Because... I don't know how you feel about it, Rick, but these were always some of the most difficult patients we ever saw. Being and they, actually, they remain that way. I mean, yeah. ERs are holding these psych cases. There's no place to put them. They need to have uh, professional sitters. It's not just a guard sitting yeah. there. You know, you need to have somebody qualified to watch them. It's it's just a mess. No, it's a mess. Uh, here's one that'll break your heart. Teen dies after treatment for suspected drug overdose at psychiatric facility. Uh, and uh, this case is, is, in a ca is in a state where doctors almost never lose. Uh, Wyoming? <laughs> well, no, Mississippi. Uh, and, and believe me, uh, those are doctor-friendly states. The plaintiff's decedent was a 12-year-old seventh grader, was a resident at the Brentwood Behavioral Healthcare Facility. She was being treated for behavioral problems. As part of her care, she was not being, she was not being treated with psychiatric medications. Decedent suffered a sudden debilitating headache at the facility. She collapsed and vomited. Uh, and they they called an emergency repress something, and they said her condition may be the result of uh, of of medications. The facility informed the the hospital of the severity of her headache. However, the triage form prepared by the hospital nurse was less detailed. So the the uh, defendant physician believed the decedent was in the midst of an apparent drug overdose and he treated her as if she was a drug overdose with Narcan. Now, this is a patient who was not being given drugs at this adolescent behavioral facility. She gets transferred. She's comatose and they treat her for the next six hours as a drug overdose. And of course she has a subarachnoid hemorrhage. What now, we have here is a uh Failure to communicate. Uh, yes, <laughs> quoting Cool Hand Luke. Yes, exactly. Uh, can you imagine, though, they send a patient over, no drugs listed on the sheet. Sa the doc says, well, she's at a psych facility, so it could be psych drugs. She has, she has one pupil blown. 
and now they've decided that this is a this is a psych medication problem. Holy Jesus. This is where a doctor basically latches on to his initial impression and sticks with it despite all evidence to the contrary. What this is, is that called? Anchoring uh, bias. Yes, this is anchoring, anchoring bias. bias. And if there ever was a case, this is anchoring bias. Yeah. And, and I think at some point in time, if I told you that this 13-year-old was or 12-year-old was playing at home had a terrible headache and lost consciousness, I think you would have understood what needed to be done at that moment in time. Because they were in a psych facility, they were labeled as such, and uh, it had to be a psych problem. I mean, it's uh, just assume that psych patients all have something organic, because the only medical legal cases I've seen is where that assumption has not been made until as far as we're concerned, they're actually sick. It was something organic until proven otherwise. And, uh, it's, it, this, this was a heartbreaking case, Rick. Is there a settlement amount there? Yes, there is. It's $1.3 million, which in Mississippi is like 20 million in Chicago. Uh, th- this is a serious, this is a serious problem. And I think that, uh, Pat Crosscarry's uh, books and and studies about anchoring bias are absolutely appropriate here. You can't take the two words psych facility and and uh, change in behavior and assume they're related. You know, it's kind of interesting. The reason I asked about the um, settlement, I take it she died. Uh, yes, she did. That uh, you know, you talked about another case of a two-year-old where the settlement was ten million dollars. You know, it's basically death of a, the outcome is the same. It's death of a child. One right. child is worth ten million. Another child is worth one million. It's kind of um, kind of interesting. You know, when I was when I was running two different insurance companies, and we would deal with the reinsurers um, in Europe. Uh, you know, insurance Scandinavia. They kind of looked at us funny and said. We hate doing malpractice because we don't know what a dead child's worth in Mississippi or in Chicago. He says, if we if we insure a boatload of shoes coming from China, we know what it's worth. We decide in advance what we're going to pay on that case. Uh, the The reinsurers hate American malpractice because there is no logic in what is awarded how long it's awarded, who gets what. And I understand why insurance people don't like us as a business. There's no sense in it, Rick. No, certainly. And I think that this points out the, uh, the disparities. But in any case, uh, Gregory, I think that we are kind of coming to the end of our time here. Do you have some wines? I see you reaching for the uh, Parker book there. Yes, I am, as a matter of fact. And the reason... I am reaching for the Parker book because they actually list what a lot of the, these things cost, at, which always blows my mind, the kind of things he looks at. However, uh, he again this month has some great wine values, and we probably ought to point a few of them out. Uh, and here you go for all of you. And, and I'm going to write a book when I retire. <laughs> 
that says, uh, if you're spending more than 60 bucks a bottle for wine, you're an idiot. Uh, because there's great cheap wines uh, for that are that are delicious. I like to drink them, and I'm not going to spend crazy amounts of money anymore unless I'm at a bucata course uh, <laughs> where somebody else is paying for the booze. And we have a few walk-ins. Yes, you know, a few walk-ins. At, at, at all of the courses that we do, one of the first things that Greg asks is how many walk-ins do we have uh, because a walk-in is kind of viewed as the gift from the gods because these people are bringing uh, uh, their registration fee and and if it may be five or six hundred dollars greg said we have three walk-ins we have eighteen hundred dollars to spend that we didn't have before <laughs> so, exactly. uh, we try to limit greg's knowledge about the uh, the walk-ins all right well, it, we've we've talked enough about uh, Costco being the the largest supplier of cheap wine in the country. Let me just give you a few names which are just terrific. One of them is McPhail, M A C P H A I L family, uh, and their Chardonnay, Russian River, uh, Sonoma County, uh, is is rated by one of the toughest judges in the world at a ninety five. And you can buy this stuff for about 40 bucks a bottle. And uh, whether you know it or not, Rick, Costco sells a bunch of wine under the Kirkland brand. Well, who do you think puts this stuff up in bottles? One of them is they buy excess wines from McPhail and those sorts of things. And, and when, when the Kirkland name is on them, they're 18 bucks a bottle. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Do that one. You'll like it. And I'll give you one more. Uh, and that's a, a name that's gone on in California forever. They're just as good as ever. And that's Rodney Strong. I mean, I've been drinking this stuff practically since I was a child. And in fact, I was a child. Uh, and, uh, and at 25 bucks a bottle, why would you spend two or three or four bucks for, for a, a, a European name, uh, when for 25 bucks a bottle, you can get a great wine. Rodney Strong, 2014 Chardonnay Blue Wing Estate. There you go. Thank you, Gregory. Um, uh, I think it's time to wrap up. Any, any final words of wisdom, my friend? No, just a thank you to the people who've been stuck with us for the last 10 years. Uh, we're kind of planning on a great next 10 years. Uh, and uh, so so uh, stay tuned and uh, uh, hope you enjoyed the show. Yeah, thank you, Greg. I appreciate your being with us for this time. You are clearly, I'm just the Ed McMahon here. You know that, I know that. <laughs> uh, no, but most people don't know who Ed McMahon is, you know. <laughs> anymore, you know, right, anymore. exactly. But, but that's kind of my role in this thing. But I appreciate so much your being with us. And uh, thanks a lot, Greg. Take it. Take care. We need to see you for the next 10 years as well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>